Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I feel like, Bruce, it's been a bit. It's been a few weeks since we've been sitting together like this on a Wednesday morning, and I'm excited to get back into our routine as we're in January. So I'm Rachel Marshall. This is my trusty and amazing co-host, Bruce Wayner, and we're talking today about becoming your own banker. This is a series we've been really discovering and walking through for months now. We're on episode number 23 as we are getting close to the end of Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And I would say this book, I mean, I probably use a lot of adjectives for everything, but I would say this is really a groundbreaking book. It's also a very fundamental and foundational book. And the reason that we have spent so long going through it is that there's just so much to really understand and unpack and discover through the timeless truths that he's laid out in this book about infinite banking, about taking control of your finances, what the banking function is, what that all means, and really how you can think differently about money. So Bruce, before we dive into today's topic, which is really on building generational wealth in this idea that Nelson says is even distribution of age classes, which might not mean anything to you at the um, just as a phrase, which is why we really uh, share the topic that we're discussing, which is generational wealth and how to think about perpetual wealth through infinite banking and how you can use it as a tool to do perpetual wealth and create multi-generational wealth. Bruce, I'd love to just hear your thoughts. Um, this is our first episode together in January. So any of your thoughts, New Year, um, holidays, Nelson Nash in general, and the state of the world. I mean, Bruce, you're really great at bringing all those things together. Well, I appreciate that. Um, my initial thought is that um, the more I talk to people about this concept and the more that they do some self-awareness, because that's what I think this book actually does, it actually gets people to think about how they're thinking. And it's really surprising how the, the most common response to is, I wish I would have learned this a long time ago. And I don't think they truly just mean about utilizing whole life. I think they actually mean about overcoming some of the human conditions that Nelson talks about in his book about the arrival syndrome, about the golden rule, um, about Parkinson's law, because really this is just a strategy you can use, but all of those other human can overcoming those human conditions can be utilized in all aspects of your life. And that is the part that I think, even though I think it's pretty obvious because I've read this book, I don't know, I don't know how many times 50 or 60 times oh wow because i carried on an airplane and i go over it on airplanes all the time um i think it's the human part of this book that is much more appealing to people than the numbers at least mm -hmm. i think it's i frankly think it should be i think that is what it is but people don't realize it that's what it is and why is that is because that is a qualifiable Thing instead of a quantifiable thing, which numbers are. Numbers are easy to realize what you're looking at, but when you're looking at a uh, the human condition, it's more of a qualifier, a qualifiable thing that you need to try to figure out on your own. And there's not a hundred percent way to do that. You you could say, well, I don't think I have arrival syndrome. I think I work at it, but I over try to overcome arrival syndrome every day of my life. I mean, you know, I, I'd say, okay, I, I really need to put two more hours into this. Oh, I'll do it. I'm fine right now. I'll do it later. You know, whatever you're doing, whether it's cutting your grass or cleaning, you know, uh, cleaning your house or whether it's your driveway, that's part of the arrival syndrome. Oh, I don't need to do that. Um, and is it that you're 70% you're at the arrival syndrome, 80%? 
overcoming the arrival syndrome. So it's, it's really kind of subjective where numbers are much more quantifiable. You know, you can just say, well, that's the number. That's also the problem with all this is that those numbers are arrived through the human condition. And that is the part that I don't think people realize when they look at illustrations. And that's why Nelson used to always say interest rates don't matter. You know, illustrations don't really matter. In some some, uh, respects, design doesn't really matter. If you read his book, Warehouse of Wealth, what he's actually trying to say is that, you know, that you are actually more, your capital has to lay somewhere. He's not talking about rates of return. He's just talking about getting capital. But it's really, it's a shiny object syndrome when you say, look, I can get you 5% rate of return, 6% rate of return. And so now today we're talking about even uh, distribution of age classes. And I want you to understand the concept more than the actual numbers when we go through this. Before, yeah, I I just actually wanted to comment and I hope my words will make sense on this um, because this is a very uh, recent thought that I'm having. So I'm kind of in real time expressing this, but what's really important about anything in life is not just being cerebral about it, not just, um, I mean, I think we sometimes try to understand something because we want full logic and we want to be able to have certainty and we want to understand fully, but there's something about life that we want. Well, Lucas and I are reading this book called Wild at Heart. It's by John Eldridge. If you've listened to it or read it, it's a profound book. We actually just finished it again for the second time today or last night, but he talks about like, we have this desire for mystery. Like we want to be in the unknown where you can have formulas on a lot of things in life, but you can't have formulas on relationships. You can't really fully have everything be known before you get into something. And part of the mystery that thrills us and makes us come alive is not exactly knowing how things are going to turn out. I mean, that's why life is an adventure, right? It's not just this exactly precise series of knowable conditions in the future. And so as we look at that set of unknown variables in the future, we want to be able to have a set of circumstances that we control, but it's not just about being, um, I guess, the numbers, where you're talking about the numbers versus the principles or the numbers versus the human portion of it. I think the numbers can be this logic side of our brain. I can never remember if it's left or right, but you know, the the logic side where we're just thinking A plus B equals C and we're thinking about, um, you know, everything consecutive and in order. And that can be the logical ordered side of our brain. But I think the human side that Nelson Nash brings out really is this idea that life is an adventure and we're trying to understand it and be able to live it in a way that maybe doesn't always just have a mathematical equation where we can say it's a formula and it's perfectly wrapped in a bow. I don't even know if any of that makes any sense, but it's something that no, it makes perfect, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I, you know, what you're trying to say is, is that the, the, the value of life is the unknown yes. the adventure. It would be like, and I'm going to show my age a little bit, but let's, it, what if you played monopoly and everybody played it perfectly? So before you start it, you already knew the outcome. Nobody yeah. would play. Absolutely. Right. Nobody played. It would be so boring. It's the same way in life. If you knew what was going on, it would be boring to people. And that is why having free will is so exciting to people, although it's scary. Well, your financial life is the same way. You have the free will to do what you think is best for you, but that is also scary. But it's also Mm -hmm. that scary is, think of this. There's not much difference between being excited and scary as far as the human physiological or scared the human mm-hmm. physiological reaction is about the same adrenaline comes in you feel tingling on your skin you, uh, so on and so forth you get a little bit uh, um, exhausted you get more wide-eyed it's all a part of it and uh, I see this with uh, people that I work with you know they look at the illustrations and they say oh this is the way it's going to be I don't want that you know, you hear all people say this all the time that this is a bad investment because they already think that 
they know the end result from the illustration. Well, first of all, as we've said a million times, it's not an investment. An investment involves risk. There's not risk here. This is a place to warehouse your wealth for banking purposes and other opportunities that might come about. Now, it really gets exciting if you can actually teach these to overcome these human uh, conditions to the next generation, the next mm-hmm. generation, and the next generation. Because that's what we're going to talk about is when this happens, not only do you get the, what Nelson calls the even distribution of, of age classes, you get some advantages of the cost of the insurance being lower. And that's what everybody focuses on all the time. The cost of the insurance is lower on younger people. However, what really is important is the compounding effect of doing it earlier. And that doesn't, that doesn't, that's, that's not, not special to life insurance. I mean, you start your 401k if you do a 401k or an IRA, if you start it younger or a brokerage account or any kind of investment, you start it younger, there's the time value of money is going to keep going. So, the only difference in this in life insurance, though, is that you get a guaranteed bump. And what is that guaranteed bump? At the end of your life, there's a death benefit. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. You know, Bruce, I really I love this chapter. And if you're following along, um, we do have several people commenting in live. If you are joining in and you haven't commented yet, so welcome, Fritz and My Lee. I think I'm saying your name correctly. Um, if you have questions about infinite banking or specifically the topic that we're discussing today, how to create generational wealth and specifically by putting policies on grandchildren, we'd love to hear your questions so that we can address them throughout the conversation today. So if you are following along again, we're on page 71, this even distribution of age classes. And Bruce, every time I read this chapter, which I know is not as many times as you have read this book, but I always... I love Nelson's way of unpacking this idea of forestry and how you have a um, profitable, long-term, sustainable business with forestry. And every single time I read this, I think I want to go into forestry because (laughs) it's long-term and it continues to generate money and it makes so much sense because it's a very long-term perspective. And then he throws in, um, you know, this comment at the end of his illustration on the forestry example, which we're going to unpack in a second. He said, you know, there's one challenge to the forestry business, and it's that you can have forest fires, you can have plant diseases, you can have storms, you can have property taxes. And so any of these things can come in and interrupt what you can do in forestry. And that's why infinite banking is similar, but even better. So Uh, that's just one of my big thoughts here. So really what we're going to do is first, I think we should just talk about that example that he leaves and talks about with forestry and then talk about why even distribution of age classes even matter. So Bruce, I'm just going to give a quick recap of this forestry example, then I'll let you take that and kind of unpack it a little more from there. So he talks about having a 4,000 acre property. And if you want to plant trees that grow on a 40 year cycle, so meaning you plant the tree and 40 years later, it's at full maturity and you're able to harvest it. Then he said, what you're going to do is divide the land into 40 compartments of hundred acres each. And each year you're going to plant one of those hundred acre parcels with trees. And so as you're planting a different crop or a different parcel of that land, every year, then after 40 years, you will have planted fully every one of the plots on your 4,000 acre property. And you'll also begin harvesting that first planting at, at that 40th year. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah well, let's, uh, let, let's clarify this. Because <clears throat> I, I mean, it doesn't really say this in the book, but I've talked to Nelson about this when he was alive. This is actually a, uh, an established forest. So he's not he's he's not going planting the first component. Okay. Okay. So this is established forest. So he's already able to harvest one block the first correct. year. Okay. Correct. That makes and, sense. And then yeah, then replant. Go ahead. Okay. So that makes sense. So in year one, essentially, what's happening is you're harvesting one parcel of that four thousand acre property, a hundred acres, and replanting it, and then you're correct. Okay. So then you're 
year two, you're harvesting the second parcel of land and replanting it. So you're already having income from the sale of the lumber on the first parcel in the first year, and you're replanting it for um, trees, lumber, timber, that you're going to then reap the harvest of that new planting in 40 years. Correct. So, so what's interesting about this is that then he says he has intermediate cuttings. And so basically 25 years in, I think it was, you have an right. intermediate cutting and then five years later, you do the same thing. So you're culling out the lesser valuable trees so that the more valuable and straighter and stronger trees have the ability to thrive and grow. And so you're earning on that planting that you made in year one, you're earning on the sale of the timber, sorry, in year 25, and then also in five-year increments or at least a couple times after that. So you're thinking of earning income off of that in a smaller chunk a few times along the way to that 40 years, and then at 40 years, you're reaping the full harvest. And so what's, what I think is amazing about this idea of having a very long-term play is that you have income that's continuing to come in, but you also have something that you're continuing to plant each year. And so it's a, a long-term growth cycle. And you can only imagine that as you're having this income every year from one portion of the harvest and then the small cutting of the 25-year the trees, then what's happening is you're having this income that is not going to ever stop and be interrupted. And I just think about how powerful that would be if you could have an asset like that, that is then passed on to your children and to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren prevented no forest fires or something of that nature come and wipe out the entire forest. So Bruce, that was kind of my thought on that example. I'd, I'd love to hear what you Yeah. And so the, you know, you can go to both extremes. So you could say, well, uh, that's one extreme, or you could just take down all 4,000 acres and then start again. And um, that would be like, if you had a death benefit and that person died, and then and then at that time you would take the proceeds and take it out on some young person, but then it would take a long time to do that again, to then reap the benefits of the death benefit. And you'd have, as Nelson mentions, um, you'd also bring into some uh, underwriting risk at that time because if you're not taking care of those, uh, getting people uh, along the generational early it brings in the fact that as they get older they could have some adverse conditions that they might not be able to get life insurance well the same thing is clear cutting and clear cutting was a, a practice that that they did before tree management came into it they would just cut down everything but then that brought in uh bare land that could be eroded away the nutrients the soil uh you could have other things that come and establish you know feed off the land eat the little shoots um, of trees that we're trying to establish. It would take a long time. So that's the same thing as if you don't uh, keep up at a young age of replanting or, or doing more life insurance with young people, you are bringing in adverse selection with what happens if a person can't get life insurance uh, at an older age. So he was a very wise man through his forestry background. And the the same thing as he, you were talking about culling out the trees or cutting the inferior trees is analogous to some of the drag that you might have in your life financially with financing. So you, you might have a really good financial plan, but then if you're continue, continually paying finance charges to a bank, a third-party bank, then that would be the same as not getting rid of that um, bad tree, that crooked tree or the, the disease tree that could actually pass disease. I don't know about where you live, Rachel, but we're losing every elm possible in, in Missouri because this beetle is going from one elm tree to another elm tree to another elm tree. Oh, wow. And so it's the same thing um, in the – if you do not take care of your population, then you risk the population not uh, sustaining itself. So he was very wise on this. I think there's a couple of things you, you pointed this out already. Um, 
about the every five years, the improvement cutting. So that's really nice. And what he's saying is, is that, okay, every time a grandkid comes about, that's another five years, basically. Now, they, they a grandkid could come every year or two or three or whatever, but that's the analogy there. You don't have to wait for the full forest to grow to an adult or the 40 years before you put life insurance on it. So I I think this is a, a piece that he kind of alludes to, but doesn't really exactly directly say. But So he has this whole example about forestry in this 4,000 acres, and then he talks about life insurance. And really, I think what the connection is, and Bruce, you're also talking about this. I just, I think maybe it would even be more clear to recognize that he's talking about this is how you build an entire banking system that doesn't just serve you during your lifetime, but also continues to serve your family for generations. And you think about it like a forest where you're continually harvesting and planting long-term, not just thinking about what's ideal today. And that's why he's talking about purchasing additional policies on additional people in the family, because then you're continuing to expand. That's the planting, if you will, of the forest. And you're continuing to expand the banking system, at which point there will be a harvest. Probably, I mean, he's saying 40 years is a generation here in um, in forestry. But if you are putting a policy on a young child, then that time frame is going to be much longer than 40 years. That could be easily 80 to 100 years where that harvest is going to come and the harvest then is the death benefit that can pay back into the family or the family banking system. Yeah, there's two there's two comments or two concepts that I um, want to talk about here is the first one is a lot of people believe that they should take uh, policies out on young people because they're going to get a lower cost of the insurance. And that is true. However, if you're going to do it for banking purposes, then, and you haven't, and you haven't been, nobody in the family has a policy, then as far as cash accumulation, it's actually better to take it out on an older person because of the time value of money. Now, we talked about this in another episode, so I'm not going to dive into it. But if you want to talk more about that concept, you know, you can get a hold of us on your specific situation. The second thing I think, and we're going to go into this now, is what you just said. You have to think long range. That is the one of the human conditions that you have to overcome because you're not going to, you're not going to be able to just capitalize this one time and just say, we're done. You're not going to be able to capitalize it two times or three times or four times and say, we're done. Um, you ha- And then you're going to pass along the same attitude or concepts to the next generation. And then to the grandchildren generation, you could actually even set it up in a trust situation where the death benefit helps jumpstart the gr- grandchild generation or even the the child generation. And that is what many of the people have done, like the Rockefellers and um, the Vanderbilts have done over the years to grow their big trust up is they constantly take out policies on new people. Now you can't do that if you don't think long range, because if you're just thinking, Oh, I'm just going to spend, spend, spend. Um, and I don't. I need all the money available now because I'm going to go spend it on something, and I'm going to build it this way. Um, you can hit home runs. You you can find the gold doing that. But I think analogy. Most of the people in the Wild West, when they when there was gold to be harvested in 1849, some people struck it rich, but a lot of people lost fortunes. The but the people that made a consistent income and really good livings were the people that were actually selling the picks, the dynamite, the shovels, the the accessories to the mining. That was guaranteed income. They weren't trying to hit for the gold. They were trying to step along along the way. And that's what Nelson is trying to establish is 
just be the person selling the picks, the shovels, the dynamite to these people looking for the gold. And you will have a consistent income along the way. Bruce, Let's I've go got ahead. a comment on that okay. because, and I was looking for the book, but I'm not sure where it is right now. So I'm going to make another plug for this Wild at Heart book by John Eldridge. So as we were reading last night, there was a story in the last chapter, and, and basically it was about um, this guy who was looking for gold in the in the mountains, and he was trying to uh, mine for gold, and and the other another guy was asking him what he was looking for and and where the gold was, and and basically what came out was that he said the gold isn't in the hills. The main gold is inside of people, but most people don't find that and use their potential. And it was just really powerful, just in light of what you just said, Bruce. I think so many times we're looking for an external investment and we think that that's the gold. And really the gold is that we're learning and we're growing and we're developing new skills and we're figuring out things and how to serve people better and we're becoming better people. And that's the true gold. Uh, so I just wanted to, to throw that in there. That's really good. My lease says buy term insurance for the family. It's cheaper, especially if you have a family. Must read the financial books by Gary K uh, Kesey, Fixing the Money Thing in Your Financial Revolution. My Lee, we always talk about um, using term to get up to your human life value whenever possible. Um, there, There is a flaw in that is that term insurance actually is a term. There's a term for that's going to run out. And so it's very difficult to do generational planning with term insurance because you're probably going to outlive the term. They um, say about one to 2% of poli of term yeah. policies actually pay out. And the reason is not that they're not good. It's that most people outlive the term of that policy. Right. And the reason they're cheaper is because they're, they're priced that way because they know people are going to outlive the term. It's not, it's for protection in your income producing years, it is not to build wealth. Okay, and that's term, the difference. Yes, term has no cash value associated with it either. So when you're building with whole life insurance, the way that we're talking with family banking and infinite banking, you have a cash value component that you're able to use along the way while you're also getting the death benefit. So it's not just as simple as cash in, death benefit out with whole life insurance. It's cash in, use the cash value while it's growing through interest and dividends, also death benefit out. And that death benefit out can fund a new premium. And so if you also think about um, death benefits to the tune of millions that are paid out with a whole life policy that's been in effect for years and years and years because it's very um, easy to grow to a, a very high death benefit if the policy is structured properly, then you have a tremendous amount of cash infusion that is able to start new premiums and those new premiums can be funded through death benefit of previous policies. I don't know if I said that in a clear way, but. Yeah. And, and um, this might be a good, I actually had a note to talk about this today. This might be a good time, excuse me, to bring this point in. Um, a lot of people can buy term insurance very uh, inexpensively through their employer. Um, their, it's group insurance. And the reason why it's even it's even more uh, inexpensive than you, you getting it uh, from a from somewhere else is because your life expectancy is going to be in the upper seventies, but your work expectancy is only going to be in your sixties. So they know that people are not going to have this after they uh, quit working. Now, they can have it after they quit working, but guess what? Now it becomes an individual policy, and it gets really expensive, so they know most people are just going to drop it. Excuse me. And so, and then there's another thing that has come up in um, a lot of people's worry, and I believe we talked about this before, but um, they, they think COVID has actually caused a lot of problems in the insurance industry because of people dying prematurely, and I just want to bring this point up because it's been brought up to me a couple times in the last six weeks or so. Um, the, the people that died mostly from COVID had comorbidities or other issues in their lives, whether it was diabetes, whether it was sleep apnea, whether it was being overweight. And unless they got the insurance before all these things happened, they were on their employer's insurance. 
and the employer's insurance was guaranteed issue. So yes, companies that did group employer insurance took a big hit during COVID, but most mutual companies do not get into group insurance. So the mutual companies were not hurt that badly in that situation. So when, that's kind of related to this even distribution of age classes because it's it's um, even distribution of not a, of adverse selection and age classes in group insurance. Yes, I think what's most compelling about this chapter to me is I still remember from the very first time I read the book, I don't even remember how long ago that was. I want to say it was close to 12 years ago when we first read the book. I remember that diagram. I'm very much a visual person. So when I see a diagram, that sticks with me, even if numbers don't. So that um, chart on page 72, and I'm just going to hold it up for those of you who are not seeing the book. So there is the picture. And um, what's happening is that Nelson is saying you have the ability to, if one grandparent generation purchases life insurance on the grandchildren. He's saying basically in his illustration, we'll unpack a little bit what he meant by this, but he was saying fund a new policy on each grandchild to the tune of $2,000 a year. This is what he was doing. He said fund that for 22 years. And then the way that policies were at that time of the writing of this book, he was then funding the continued base premium with dividends and not paying the full paid up additions. And so he was showing how that policy would perform. And then he said, if that child or the grandchild who has the policy on them, then begins to use that policy for purchasing cars and homes and things like that by borrowing against the cash value and paying back, he said it performs better and you get higher cash value. The reason for that is because they're paying back with interest, they're paying back more than required, which means they're fully funding the paid up additions and putting more capital into the policy. If you look back in some of the previous episodes in this series, we've really unpacked what that means and how um, this Becoming Your Own Banker book demonstrates and um, and categor or quantifies higher cash values if you use the policy. The reason is you're putting more cash in, more capital by paying additional um, more than the more than the loan, you're paying back with additional interest, and the reason you're doing that is you're putting in additional premium for paid up. Yeah, if, yeah. Like, this might be one of the most complicated things that people have. Uh, um, <clears throat> let's just read what Nelson says on page seventy. A word of clarification is necessary here. The interest he pays the policy is not really interest on the loan. The interest on the loan actually goes to the insurance company. That's okay because you're part owner of the insurance company and you'll reap some of the benefits of that by additional profits in the form of dividends. It, it is additional premium. He actually writes this and he puts it in, he puts it in italics that is equal to the amount of interest he is paying to the finance companies. Please go back to page 58 and thoroughly understand this fact. <clears throat> I believe Nelson from talking to him he was trying to get people motivated to take action. So he was trying to say to you, hey, just get this thing started with the base premium and fund it, fund it, fund it. And then when you use the cash value to purchase something instead of financing it through an outside bank, um, then you're going to pay back. And if, you're, if the insurance company charged you 5%, Charge yourself another 5%. So a total of 10%. The 5% goes to the insurance company. The additional 5% is just additional capital that you can pay into the PUAs, the paid up additional insurance. And that gets more capital for you to use in the future, whether it's for more uh, banking uh, uh, operations or for more investments or take passive income in the future. However, if you're working with a advisor or a practitioner, an authorized practitioner, and you're looking at your full financial picture, the best way to do this would be to actually capitalize both the base and the PUAs as much as possible from the very beginning. But if you do that, then you don't have an additional 
PUA that you can pay into it because of the MEC limit. And this gets very confusing for people. Well, Nelson said this. Yes, I know Nelson said that, but that Nelson was trying to motivate people to get started. And also when Nelson wrote his book, the insurance companies actually treated the PUAs a little differently. You didn't have to fund it. There came about a, a situation called adverse selection, which I've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, where there was no catch-up or there was a catch-up provision. So if you missed all your PUAs, you could just catch it up on your deathbed. Insurance companies found out that that's not good because that's adverse selection. Why would you allow somebody to catch up all these years of not paying premiums in one day and then die the next day? <clears throat> so since the book was written, insurance companies have changed their catch-up provisions where you can't catch up PUAs the same way. You still can catch up a little bit but you can't catch up the same way. So the books is still relevant and the books has merit on 99% of the, of the thing, the chapters, but you have to modify that based upon not only new uh, decisions by the insurance companies, but there was also a new 7702 law by the, by the IRS that allowed a different mech calculation, which was different than when the book was written. So Keith, um, yes, I see your question. If your premium PUA portion is already paid at maximum when yearly policy payment amount is made, there is no extra to put in when repaying the loan. Is this correct thinking? Yes. So what that means- Keith, Yeah, Keith, we need to have you on the show because that was a very easy way of saying it. Yes. I have a tendency to try to give you all the nuts and bolts, but yes, that's the, the, that is 100% true. That doesn't yes. mean it's a bad thing. Does it not mean it's a bad thing? It's just it's just a different thing. It means that if you design the policy with base and PUA, and every year you pay your full base and PUA, the policy is going to perform the best possible, which means taking loans and repaying them will not increase the capitalization, which will not increase the cash value because you won't have any extra to put in. However, you'll still have to repay the loan and you repay that at interest. The interest goes to the life insurance company, which makes them more profitable and comes back to you in the form of dividends. So, yes, great thinking on that, Keith. And one more thing, Rachel, because uh, yeah. this comes up all the time. People say, well, then why would I want to do this? Because I'm coming right back to where I am. I don't understand that. Well, that's because you're, if you do this over a long period of time where you're capitalizing, 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 capitalizing for 20, 30 years, you're going to have a lot more compounding effect than the drag of you taking a partial loan to actually purchase something. So that is, it's still an effective, a very effective thing to do to fully fund your PUAs. And then Keith, if you ha if you get to the situation which everybody does, you start you start having more capital as you get older, then you can actually start another policy. And you know Nelson did this in the tune of about I believe it was thirty three policies over his lifetime. And there's there's different ways that you can do it. You could take additional policies out on yourself. You could take it out on your spouse. You could take it out of your children, grandchildren, or you can actually if you have a term rider on your policy, you can actually convert that according to the rules of the insurance company to another permanent policy. You will not be able to put as uh, the same amount of premium in the original more than likely because of the MEC limits, but now you'll start a new MEC limit on the new policy. So those are all ways that the PUAs are still very, very valuable. You know, I love this whole concept of being able to create perpetual wealth. And this comes back to the idea of having a grandparent purchase a policy on a grandchild. What in, What's happening is that child then is having as long of a time frame for this compounding to happen during their lifetime. And Bruce, you mentioned this at the very beginning. It's not that it's magic or that you should always put policies on grandchildren. The point is that the younger you are, the more time you have 
to go up that exponential compound interest curve. I don't remember from math. Uh, I don't even know what math that's in. It's that parabolic curve, whatever it's called, that it's the hockey stick. <laughs> so it looks like a straight line for a long time. And then all of a sudden you kind of hit this point of, I don't know, awesomeness. Uh, if you're a mathematician, you're totally laughing at me right now, but basically it like curves and then it looks like it's going vertical because it's tremendous amount of growth. It takes a long time to get up to that point though. And the longer you have a policy in force, the longer your interest in dividends can continue to grow and compound on top of themselves, meaning your dividends earn dividends and your interest earns interest. And as that's all happening, you have a greater compound growth curve. So if the grandparents are purchasing insurance on grandchildren, that grandchild, as they're growing throughout their life, has the most cash value coming into their possession because they own the policy. And if they then, when they get to those years that make the most sense, they have the most disposable income or expendable cash, they're then funding policies on their grandchildren. You have this ability to continue growing. And I don't even, I guess a circle is not even the best representation of what's happening, but you have this long-term exponential growth curve that's happening in your generational life. It's not just over one lifetime, it's over generations in your family. And because of this, Nelson is saying that you can use infinite banking to create perpetual generational wealth. And it also, instead of just being a tool, it's really a system of thinking. It allows you to then transfer things like the idea of stewardship and the the way to manage finances, the, the right thinking to your children and grandchildren. Because if you're handing them a accessible, um, let's just say you're handing them accessible pool of capital that's been built over generations and you want them to be a part of continuing to grow it for future generations, their responsibility to the people before them and the people after them is going to be very apparent. And so you're able to get all of these Sorry, I'm getting a lot of talking from my son in the background. You're getting all of these tremendous benefits, like you have multiple generations, you have long range planning, underwriting problems are minimized. When you put policies on young people, there's less likelihood of sickness and adverse conditions that would impact their insurability. You have tax-free buildup of cash values over a long period of time. The outlay is very small compared with the yield. And the list just kind of continues on. It creates a self-sustaining perpetually growing system of wealth for a family. And you just have a tremendous ability to teach the next generation how to be a manager and a wealth creator by using that tool. Yeah. One of the couple of things that uh, in that list, we're not going to go over every one of them, but I love the, the one towards the end where it says wealth mentality is transferred to succeeding generations over a long period of time to produce consistent understanding. They are learning a process, not buying a product. And Nelson used to talk about this all the time. And I maybe I'm even guilty of this sometimes. I, I call it an infinite banking policy. There's no such thing as an infinite banking policy. It's an infinite banking strategy. You just happen in this case to use a whole life insurance product because you can do this. We've talked about this before. You can do this with a, a HELOC. You can do it with a CD that's capitalized at the bank, but they don't have the same overall benefits as the whole life does. And then finally, the, the last thing he says in this chapter is money won't buy happiness, but poor stewardship of money will steal happiness. And I think that's a really uh, nice thing to end on uh, for this chapter. Keith actually made a, another or asked another question or comment he says, yes, exactly, beat me to it. So I guess I said something, that, and I forgot what it is already. Sorry, Keith. He says, in, he inquired by adding, oh, it must have been about uh, term conversion, uh, inquired by adding more into but was told, no, it's already at max. Need new underwriting. Thanks for that. <clears throat> okay. I can't help myself. I have to bring this up because in our study group, Tuesday, yesterday, we were actually talking about this. So there's a faction of people that are trying to do infinite banking, what they call infinite banking, with very little skinny base policies and great big PUA policies. And one of the unintended consequences of that 
is in order to do that so that they do not mech because the base controls most of the initial death benefit. So if you pull that base death benefit down, that base premium down, the death benefit gets very small. In order to put in the 90% of PUAs then, which doesn't, the ratio of that is usually only two to three to one, where the base death benefit, it's one to 10 or one to 15 premium dollars to death benefit. In order to then overcome that, you have to put this huge term rider on the policy. And as as Keith, it sounds like you may have discovered, I may have misinterpreted this, but other people are discovering this. They love the infinite banking concept. They love the use of whole life. They maxed out their human life value by using really skinny base policies because they had to add a several million dollars of term to support the PUAs that they cannot add any more policies on their life. And that is a really detrimental thing. We had a a money advantage client who came to us after they went to another person and set up a policy on their wife, his wife, and they did a big SPUA on top of a skinnier base. And that big SPUA, they had to add $4.9 million of just term to their policy. He now has more capital coming in from not increasing his income, but from decreasing debt, which doesn't change the human life value. And he's uninsurable. So they can't, they can't set up any more policies. They don't have any children. They don't have any grandchildren. Now we got a little creative and we actually took it out on an investment partner of his because he had invested several hundred thousand dollars and we were able to show an insurable interest, but it is a really big problem that they don't talk about on these skinny base policies. So Keith, thank you for um, those comments and questions and PUAs are both very, very important in the policy, but can, but also can be very detrimental if they're not handled correctly. Man, there was just so much packed into that, Bruce. And I think that just highlights the reason why you need to work with somebody not only who understands life insurance really well, but who can understand your situation and prepare you to do the most with what you have today, but also to leave room for what is continuing to happen in your life so that you can create the best circumstance over all of time. I mean, I'm a huge fan of having as much death benefit as you can get. But that means if you get as if you have as much death benefit as you can get, that means you don't have space for any more policies as well. So then you do need to turn to how can we insure someone else? How can we insure a child, a grandchild? You have to have insurable interest though. You just can't go, um, I don't know, insuring the the postman or something. You have to have a financial reason why it makes sense for you to be impacted financially at their passing. Yeah, and, and and that's a good point. So let's talk a little bit about this also. Insurance companies have changed their attitude over the last 10, 20 years on insuring grandchildren too. And you can still do it, um, but you have to show that the the parents of the grandchildren, so that would be the children of the first generation, actually have life insurance. So if they don't have life insurance, you cannot insure the grandchildren. Um, also, they want the, um, in most companies, want the parents to be the owner of that particular policy initially. Now, we've talked about this in other podcasts, and we have a little time to talk about this. There's three components to every contract, the owner, the insured, and the beneficiary. The owner can change the ownership and the beneficiary at any time. So once the policy is actually in place, then the child, the second generation, can actually change ownership if they want to the to the grandparents, their parents, or into a trust if they would like. So or Bruce, couldn't it, you it, also, if the owner insured beneficiary, there's also the payer. I mean, if you really looked at it that way, I mean, couldn't the grandparents pay for the policy but have the parents own it? 
on the child. Is that possible? Yes. Yes. You, yeah. The payee can be anybody. That's great. All right. Hey, we, uh, Brad. Hey, Brad. Thanks for joining. And um, Brad, I, I agree. He says, I'm using this as a pool to invest in income producing real estate. Do you like that as a strategy? It doesn't seem that seem that beneficial versus just investing in real estate without a policy. Mm. You know, I this is this is a, a thing that I think is con- confusing on social media too, is I'm not saying that you should not be using this for investing in the real estate. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't even do a skinny policy, um, a skinny base policy with a large PUAs, but that's not infinite banking. Uh, because part of infinite banking is thinking long range, okay? And that's not thinking long range when you immediately take out a large uh, chunk and go invest. And the other thing, Brad, I hope you overcome that uh, human condition of making sure you're not just always investing, but you're you're also saving. Because what my experience has been is people that have this short-term thinking, you know, since I've been in this since the 80s, is if they do something like that, they have a tendency not to pay back the loans. And that's short-term thinking or stealing the peas, as Nelson said. So, Brad, if you can overcome that, I don't think that's an issue. I think it's it's great that you do it. I actually do it with oil and gas partnerships with my cash value, which is has similar characteristics of real estate without the toilets, tenants, and termites that come with real estate, because I used to deal with that too. And then, Brad, your follow-up, do you have illustrations that show otherwise? Are there uh, compelling reasons? Um, yeah, Bruce, I'm I can sure speak to that as well. So, okay. Here's what I think you're saying, Brad, and um, correct me or type in another comment if you're if you're not hearing what you're looking for in your question. But what happens is that as Bruce is saying, if you can overcome that tendency to think, I've got to put cash into a policy and tomorrow take a full loan against that policy cash value and go put it in real estate and stay in a position of, I call that redlining the policy where you're always taking max loans. That's what Bruce is saying is not a good way of running or operating infinite banking with cash flowing real estate or with any real estate property. However, if you think about this, you'll you'll have an advantage in your in your long-term thinking if you can overcome that but also recognize when you put money into a life insurance policy, you're growing that cash value based on dividends and interest. That will continue to grow even if there's a pol- uh, loan against that cash value. So when you take out a policy loan at some point, because you've been diligent to continue saving and you're not just having to press the button and take any hot investment right away today, you're willing to be patient, you're willing to get a good deal, you're willing to sit on cash for a while, then you do have the ability to take a policy loan against that cash value. And that policy loan you can put to work in additional investments. So that could be real estate. That could be any any investment, like Bruce is saying, oil and gas. When you do that, now you have the returns over in the investment property or the investment. You also still have the growth happening inside, inside the cash value. So you have two ways that you're growing the cash at the same time. So because of that, you can call it an and asset. You're not just getting only the returns in your investment. You're not only getting the returns inside the life insurance. You're getting both at the same time. Yeah, and Brad, if you're like uh, most real estate guys, we we have a client out in California that's a big time real estate person. Uh, he he did he does see the value of the base death benefit though, and um, the reason he sees it is he knows he's going to have an estate tax problem in the future. And he wants to have some guaranteed death benefit to pay the estate taxes on his um, estate when he is finished uh, or graduated from this earth. And so there are some reasons to have that leveraged up death benefit too. A lot of real estate people say, I don't understand. Why would I put 100000 into a policy, only have the ability to borrow against maybe sixty-five or $70,000 when I can use that other 30,000 to get into real estate, I think this is what you're asking, Brad. 
why, how can that possibly be advantageous? Well, it can't, it's not advantageous in the short run, but just as Rachel said, it's advantageous in the long run because you're getting a, a return and it's a tax-free return. And I know real estate has a lot of tax advantages too, but you're also building up a death benefit that can go to the next generation to pay for estate taxes. And as we wrap up here at the end of this podcast, um, my Lee, you asked about the oil and gas partnerships. Um, I can't comment on that um, because I'm security licensed. I have to actually make sure that you're an accredited investor um, before I comment on that. So if you want to, you want to reach out to us and have a session so that we can prove that, that you are an accredited investors and, and talk about the pros and cons of that. Um, I can discuss that with you in private, but not in a public forum. I cannot do that. All right. So we're going to try to land this plane here. We've talked about a lot of things today. If you've been with us on the whole podcast today, thank you for bearing with us and for um, just asking great questions that really help us to be able to answer exactly what you're needing and looking for. Um, one thing that I want to close, well, the thing I want to close with here is that Nelson begins this chapter by um, quoting Proverbs 13:22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I love that principle and that idea of recognizing that we have a calling, a responsibility, a exciting adventure to be in a, to live our life in a way that we are able to leave an inheritance. And so that has been such a compelling um, call to myself and my husband that we have written a book that is all about that. And I don't have the actual pretty book in front of me. So here's my, <laughs> my author copy that says not for presale on the front of it. Um, so it's called seven generations legacy. And it really helps you to take these concepts of how to use infinite banking. Yes. To create a legacy for children and grandchildren, but how even more than that, you have to transfer a legacy of values and make sure that you teach the financial principles and teach your children how to handle money well. I'm sorry, I have two children in the room with me today. So um, they're getting to hear all of this. He also closes the chapter by saying, be sure you know the condition of your flocks, give attention to your herds for riches do not endure forever. And a crown is not secure for all generations. That's Proverbs 27, 23 through 24. We need to be paying attention to our financial decisions. Everything that you place attention on has the ability to expand and grow. If you ignore it, it does not thrive and flourish. Your health doesn't, your nutrition doesn't, your relationships don't, your marriage doesn't. If you have anywhere in your life, you're putting your attention, you will be able to grow and expand in that area of your life. So I'm going to close all of this. If you are looking for being able to implement infinite banking in your life or any type of investments or do anything for the sake and the purpose of getting more of your money under your control, having more control over your capital, becoming your own banker, taking over the banking function, thinking long range in your financial life. We can help you with that. And you can book a call by going to themoneyadvantage.com. And there's a, a way to click on the calendar right from that homepage. And you can go ahead and book an appointment that will bring you into a conversation with an advisor and have the ability to discuss your financial situation and really figure out the best way to, to move forward. Again, most things are designed specifically, well, all, all of our financial strategies are designed specifically for you and custom tailored, not just one size fits all. So that's why we need a conversation to be able to comment on exactly how to make that work for you. So in closing, I'm going to leave us there. Thank you for being with us on this show today. If you are listening, go ahead and like the video. You can share it. You can subscribe wherever you're listening and even leave us a review. If you're on Amazon, not Amazon, Apple podcasts, Google play, all of the places where you get your podcast. So thank you for being with us today. In closing, please remember success leaves clues. So follow model the successful view, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside.
Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.